Welcome to Sunday Chats 969, the podcast where you can listen back to interviews that were first broadcast on All FM 96.9. We are an award-winning community radio station based in Manchester, UK. We've just celebrated our 21st birthday and we continue to connect authors and musicians both near and far. On today's episode, my special guest is the fantastic award-winning journalist and author, Mike Cavalier. He's joined us all the way from Florida to tell us about his latest book, The Humorist. Coming up on today's show, I am continuing my theme of interviewing authors in the horror genre, which is currently the fourth most popular genre of literature. And my special guest today is the fantastic comedy writer and award-winning journalist, Mike Cavalier. So we're chatting to him today ahead of the release of his brand new book on the 13th of June, and it's called The Humorist, Adventures in Adulting and Horror Movies. So Mike Cavalier from carverstories.com will be telling us all about the lessons we can learn from adult life to get us through adult life from horror movies. And it's a laugh out loud book. It's funny. It's serious. It's everything that you want. And it's all centered around horror stories. If you look at the cover of this book, it's a bit of um, a parody or spoof of the the cover of The the Exorcist. (laughs) So to get going, I'm going to play you the theme tune from The Exorcist. Enjoy this.
Hi, Mike. Welcome to All FM. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Ruth. Thanks for having me. It's really good to have you on the show. We've got you on today to celebrate the release of your latest book, but The Humorist, which, because I know that it's um, based around horror movies, as soon as I, I saw this title, I thought, well, well, here's Mike to exercise our demons of depression and, and lift our spirits. And um, I think that, that you kind of do that, really, because there's plenty of laugh-out-loud moments, uh, as well as um, serious moments as well. Um, and, and what I love about this book is it's such a unique hybrid because it's a bit like your autobiography, in a sense, through, through your experiences growing up watching horror movies. So, so how would, would you actually describe this book? Yeah, well, well first of all, thank you. Um, that's, that's very kind. And yeah, I, I think Sorry. I'd just describe it as a it's sort of a collection of personal essays about growing up and kind of learning about life through an addiction to film and specifically uh, to horror films. You yes. know, all of the stories center around my own life, like you said, and they, they all kind of focus on these culture shock moments of adulthood, you know, marriage, becoming yeah. a stepdad, a rare disease, diagnosis, stuff like that, except every story is filtered through and informed by scary movies. And it's pretty dramatic. I think one of the things that you kind of bring home to us in a way is that sometimes um, reality can be uh, as scary as the movie or even more so in a way due to um, a series of health issues that you describe in the book. Yes, 100%. You know, I think one of the, the big driving forces behind uh, the writing of this book was I wanted to explore that relationship that we have with screens and and how that relationship can kind of cross over into being unhealthy you yeah. know because on the one hand i do love movies and i think that they're uh that that there, there's a certain magic you know to that art form um but on the other hand you can glorify the watching of movies and intellectualize it and you could say that by watching movies i'm connecting more to the filmmakers who made this thing and, and to humanity on some grander level. But at the same time, you are sort of isolating yourself in a dark room, often by yourself, yeah. staring at an electrical box. And so, you know, I, I did want to explore where that line is between connecting with the real world through movies and sort of running from the same time. I totally get that. And, and this is a great time to actually be discussing your book, especially the, the parenting aspect as well, because right now here in, in the UK, I don't know if it's the same over there, but it, it's um, half-term break. So, you know, you've got yeah. all this d dynamic of do we actually um, – partake in activities with the kids or just sit them in front of a screen um, <laughs> uh, and also we've got Father's Day um, coming up and I found it really interesting to kind of read about your your experiences and that, that kind of uh, the dynamic of do you want to be a, a father, being a stepdad and, and so forth so, so it's a really good, good time to talk about this. So we've got a new phrase going on here right now in terms of parenting which is Sherrington. So I don't know whether, whether you hear about that uh, a lot over there, but, but that, again, is about the relationship between um, screens. You know, it's like, do parents overshare 
images of their children or videos of what they're all doing on, on, on screen. So, so it's, it's really good to speak to you at this time. Yeah, it, it could be really, really tempting, I think, to just give them an iPad or plop them in front of the screen mm. and sort of let the screen do the parenting for you. Of course. But there's also something very sort of insidious about that, you know, because what are they what are they picking up from the screens? How much of that is, is laziness on your part and how much of it is just something that they should and, and could be doing as a kid? I mean, I do have a lot of memories of my own childhood, you know, playing Sega Genesis and watching TV, and I, I think that all of that is fine, but at the same time, just like when you get older and you kind of question your own relationship with screens, you have to question how you're using them as a parent, and am I using this as a crutch, or is it just another tool? And I think that the line dividing those two can, can be pretty gray sometimes. Yes, definitely can. Um, but one of the the, the great things um, about this book is like in the, the beginning, in the first um, chapter, which um, we will treat our, our listeners to um, um, in actual audio of as well, um, you talk about your experiences as like growing up between the, the 80s and, and 90s where it was all like DVDs and VHS and, and, and that experience. And, and that's kind of, that, that changes how you process everything, doesn't it? I really, really think it does. You know, I have these really romantic memories of Blockbuster Video, you know, yeah. walking through the aisles, and it was it was such an event. To it kind of was an event, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you go there with your, with your siblings or with your mm -hmm. friends, and you look forward to it, and all you know about these movies is the cover art. So every single time that you pick up one of these, you knew that it was a gamble. Yeah, I don't really know what this movie is about. Rotten Tomatoes doesn't exist to tell me whether or not it's good. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to take my chances. And, you know, in a way, it kind of forced you to focus more on, on what you rented. You know, the movie that you brought home, that was your activity for the night, and there really weren't a whole lot of other options. And nowadays, it's so easy to be looking at your phone while you're watching a movie. Or if you don't like something, you can just go on Netflix and scroll for hours and find something else. You know, the, the possibilities are endless. And so it does sort of change the way that we, that, we, uh, that we consume media. And I think some ways are for the better and some ways not so much. Yeah, yeah. Cause I, I was quite small. Um, when I used to go to, to Blockbuster with, with my um, sister and I, I just always remember it's like, you know, obviously you only could have that VHS for a, a day or a week or something, so, you know, it, it was a whole other dynamic. It wasn't like everything being available to you right there as it is on, on Netflix so, so you did have to choose what you're going to, you could only like pick between three and five uh, videos on top of it, um, so, so it was a whole um, other experience Experience. But I think that maybe all that's what's made your um, your, your memories around it so vivid. I think so, yeah, because you do have to choose wisely when you're walking physically down the aisles of a store. Yeah. You only have a few options that your mom is going to pay for that night. Mm. So you have to choose wisely, and then you sort of have to cherish it. You know, when you bring that item home, you really have to sit in front of the screen and pay attention, and it felt like sort of an important event, which nowadays so many movies, so many things that we watch can just feel like background noise or wallpaper. But back yeah. then it really wasn't like that. And so I think that those memories do 
imprint on you in a certain way that they probably don't so much now, you know, even thinking about my, my own stepdaughter, I, I don't think that she's going to have the same memories of uh, certain TV shows and movies like I did because those were sort of the only things that were around. So I always look forward to watching a show like Are You Afraid of the Dark, which I don't know if you guys had yes. over in the UK. Yeah, yeah we did. <laughs> yeah, so that was just a, an important part of my week, you know, I'm going to turn on Nickelodeon and watch, yeah. and watch Are You Afraid of the Dark. Mm-hmm. But now you have, you could, you know, go on Netflix and find a billion different horror shows for teens or young adults and you kind of lose that uh, that magic, I think. Of course, so none of it's uh, as memorable. Um, but mm-hmm. but I think as well because like back in in the beginnings of of things like what what you're talking about, the online world wasn't really a thing either. So so that kind of limited what you knew about the the actors in in real life as well. So you could get invested in the story in a whole other level. It's like you know this is who they are in this movie right now. Yeah, the way that they exist in your head was really the only thing that mattered. Nowadays, you bring in so much baggage, in a way, from the real world. You know, what do I know about this person off screen in their own life? Do I agree with their politics? You know, sometimes that even bleeds in. And yeah. when you're, especially when you're, when you're a kid, I don't, I don't think that you need that extra baggage. You just want to escape into the fantasy of whatever it is that you're watching and hopefully relate to the characters enough to, to learn something about um, the world or yourself. Yes, yeah. Now, now I find it really interesting to to, to read your your book because when you were kind of like delving into some of your your teenage memories and you were talking about the fact that um, addictions weren't really your thing, like drugs weren't really your your thing, and and stuff like that. But but it seems like that movies was your addiction. This was what was actually your addiction. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, I think that. One way or another, we all have our our vices, you know, and it might not be drugs or alcohol for me mm. because I kind of feel like I lose control of my senses, you know, when I when I have those things and I see that as a bad thing. But then at the same time, when you're staring at a screen and you make that such a, a huge part of your life, you're doing a, a very similar act. You know, you're giving away your sensory experience to to something else, to something outside of yourself. and. Over time, you know, you kind of start to wonder how much am I am I using this as kind of my escape um, from real life, from from things I don't understand, from things that I find that are scary. And you start to feel things in movies that maybe you even confuse with things that you experienced in real life. You know, how much of my of my memories um, are informed by by TV and by screens, and you sort of realize after a while that um, there's definitely a, a darker element at play there, especially when you're in a, a very serious and intimate moment in your own life, and then a thought creeps in your head like, oh, if this were, if this were a movie, this scene would be important, or, you know, what should I say in this, in this moment? You know, what would a character in a, in a, in a movie say? And that's sure. such a warped way of seeing the world, but... At least for me, it's it's been pretty common throughout my life. For better or worse. Well, yeah, well, that was the, the thing that I was, I was going to ask you as well, because I, as I was reading the book, it, it occurred to me that y- your 
um, your lens of like viewing the world through the movies really came in, into play when you were dealing with your your, your, your parenting uh, anxieties and then you, you kind of like retreated back into that world but then looked to it for, for what advice it could provide you with um, but was that always your way of being then do you think from, from your earliest days? I think that it was, and, and initially the idea of this book, I think, came from a place of fear originating from the idea of parenting. You know, my, my wife wanted to have a baby, and I wanted to avoid that topic for as long as possible, ideally, ideally forever, I think. But, you know, we would talk about it a little bit, and then we would shelve it, and we, we were just very noncommittal. And during this time, you know, I realized that – I was watching more and more movies, and then it's kind of impossible for it not to occur to you that maybe I'm doing that as a way to avoid facing this kind of scary, big life issue. And then as a lifelong film obsessive, you have to go back and think, well, okay, if I'm doing that now, how much of my life have I spent doing that, you know, kind of detaching from or escaping from the real world through being an observer of everyone else's lives on, on the films but not really engaging yeah. <laughs> in your own life. Absolutely. I think it's, um, it, it's really inspiring and, and it's going to be very thought-provoking for, for so many people because for many people I think they only started to realise their relationship with screens more so during the, the Covid era really. I think that was kind of where it came into to play more so. People weren't really as aware of their watching habits till that was all there was and, and that was actually um, the, the escapism. So, so was it around the COVID time that you decided to write this book or is it a book that you've been wanting to write for, for a longer time? 
Yeah, it's a really good question um, about about COVID. I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about that so much, but you're right that before COVID, we all kind of thought about screens as a as a complementary part of our life, and then during COVID, it became more central, which um, is interesting. As for the writing of this book, I think that um, it's a little bit of both. You know, I think that that time did kind of give me uh, a clearer view of what my certain brand of neuroses were, what my anxieties were, and then I had a little bit more time to focus in on them and, and kind of clarify what the problem was and, and maybe try to figure out how to fix it. But these all are also themes that I think I've been working on uh, through a lot of my writing over the years, you know, these ideas of, of aging and um, trying to figure out uh, how much of yourself really does change over the years and mm. if it's able to keep if you're able to keep parts of your past in you or if you kind of have to jettison them in order to grow and become a newer version of yourself and through horror films the, the more that i watched and the more that i sort of studied horror tradition and, and horror history there's this thing where genres and subgenres they change over time and they they kind of become self-aware and then they sort of reinvent themselves and thinking through that, you see a lot of parallels with how we grow and change as a culture and, and as people. And, and it's such a reflection. It seems, it seems crazy in one sense to really say that, you know, horror films and the history of horror reflects um, the human experience. But mm -hmm. I really do think it does. And, it, and the special effects and the monsters and all the high style of horror films, I think, tend to um, give people permission to not take this art form seriously. And I think that that is a shame because there really is a lot to offer kind of buried beneath all the visceral scares that are found within it. Sure. I mean, um, one thing I remember um, studying in, in psychology once was they were saying that during times of recession, when there's actual recessions going on, you'll find that um, it, the whole zombie culture will become more popular because it's there like a, a reflection of how we, we as a, a society are kind of like drained and only half living or kind of like the, the living dead. Um, and that was one of the mm -hmm. first times that I, I actually became aware of the fact that, yeah, there is this whole other more, more serious side to, to, to horror and how it's kind of like reflecting back to us in, in culture. So, so yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. I love one of the things that you said in, in the book about the, uh, the zombie groan of adulthood calling because that's <laughs> to be something that was kind of like every so often it's like oh my god I can't stay in this kid um state for, for much longer yeah it, it really is ominous you know when you realize that you're a grown-up now and <laughs> it's, it's not something that you're waiting to happen anymore you know you grow up your whole life thinking oh when I'm a grown-up I'll deal with this I'll deal with that mm. and then one day all of a sudden you look up and you know it's right here right now and and you you sort of realize that this idea that um, it's coming and that you can deal with it later is just another way to sort of deny your own personal growth and horror is such a great reflection of that because it does move in in these movements and you know right now we're seeing a lot of of social horror you know i think that Alan yeah. jordan Hill's movie really kicked off a lot of that mm. and we're seeing more and more and more and i think that 
you know, at least in America, you know, certain certain political cycles uh, do drive those things. In in other eras, certain certain wars and like you're saying um, with with zombies, there could be a whole lot of reasons for why certain kinds of horror movies or certain monsters become popular, but it is a very simplistic view to just think that monsters and vampires are just monsters and vampires. You know, they're always representative of something else. Yes. And that could either be something cultural or something very personal to the filmmaker. Uh, but there usually is a bigger idea there that we can learn something from, which only in a weird way complicates my my relationship with movies even more because it would be easy if there was really no meat to these things and I can just say, I'm wasting my time spending all these all these hours watching movies. You know, this is yeah. just this is a way to detach. But I really do think that there are things that you can learn from it. So it's more about that difficult balance in your life. How how do you learn how how do you become better through a hobby? without letting that hobby consume all of your time and attention. Well, I, I loved it. I was like, you know, it just goes to show that it's never a waste of time. It's never a waste of time to, to watch the, these horror movies. I thought, you know, that was kind of one of the messages that, that I was getting from, from the book. And I, I also yeah. loved your, your takeaways because it feels like as if there is a, a few different ways that you can actually read this book. You can read it all the way through or depending on where your concentration level is right now, you, you could go through the, the book. <laughs> through these bold type now playing takeaways so, so the format of the book is a bit like taking us through a cinema isn't it with all these little cinematic themes as um, some of your, your main um, chapter headings and stuff yeah you play with the form a little bit and kind of pick you to to movies and the cinema through you know instead of the table of contents it's called showtimes mm. and the, in, instead of just parts i've broken that up into something like you know previews matinee double feature midnight movies and then and those are kind of all the titles of the chapters but then within the chapters yeah you're right we have all of these these um now playing whatever the movie might be now playing ghoulies and that's the movie that, you know, I, I first remember scaring me back from Blockbuster Video when I was a kid. Yeah. And The first movie that ever scared me was a 1980s creature feature called Ghoulies. My mom rented it for my brother Chris and me one roaring Friday night from our local Blockbuster Video. Back then, this was our idea of a party. We'd hit Blockbuster and troll the aisles, the heels of our sneakers exploding red with every step, and we'd search for the night's main event. It was the 90s, and we were explorers in there, flying blind and taking chances. We'd barrel through the sections, new releases, to favorites, to comedy, to action, without a single internet review or Rotten Tomatoes score to lead our way. The risk was part of the ritual, the thrill of the hunt, the high stakes, we bet it all on every movie we ever rented from that place, and we couldn't get enough. We craved its rush. We were eight-year-old gamblers and ten-year-old ramblers, holding the fate of our nights in our hands with every tape. We had only one guiding light, VHS cover art, and we lived and died young by it. Finally, we hit the horror section, that's where we found Ghoulies, and its cover art was primo. In it, a green monster baby wearing red suspenders, think... An angry-looking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle with wrinkly arms and sharp fingernails. 
was holding himself waist up from out of a toilet bowl. Tagline? They'll get you in the end. Say no more, ghoulies. You're coming with us. Mom! I probably yelled, coming in hot to establish the seriousness of this request. Can we get this? We have to get this. Mm, I don't know, she said. Looks kind of scary. Clearly, she was hysterical. We won't get scared, I whined. No way, Chris jumped in. I'm not a baby anymore. Mom! It's easy to miss. But in this moment, Chris and I had seamlessly transitioned into the foolproof childhood negotiation technique known as shock and awe. It was sure to reinforce the gravity of this situation and overwhelm my mother into bending to our will. We hit her with a surround sound attack, me on one side, Chris on the other, raining pleads upon her like two verbal Gatlin guns, spraying and praying. It worked like a charm. Before we knew it, we were in the checkout line begging for Blockbuster's signature $9 packs of Sour Punch and $52 buckets of popcorn. There's popcorn at home, my mother said, not even dignifying our request by looking down at our needy faces. She was stonewalling, a classic adult negotiation strategy and one we knew well. We'd seen it employed many times before. We had tried all of our tactics on her in the past in this line, such as the soft sell, Sure would be nice to get some of these M&Ms and, oh, wow, look, they're only $8. Reverse psychology. Hey, Chris, imagine if mom punished us by forcing us to eat a whole pack of these $11 milk duds. The wet ask, otherwise known as crying. And when desperate, we appealed to her maternal instincts, clutched our stomachs and writhed in fake pain. But I'm starving! This was known as the Hail Mary plea, a.k.a. the self-destruct protocol. High risk, but high reward. None of them worked. My mom was good, real good. She never entered the snack line without an airtight exit strategy. In case of emergency, she always had a failsafe. Would you rather go home with nothing? She'd snarl, eyebrows raised so smug. She knew she had us. In that rope-lined maze surrounded by sugar-coated temptations, my mother was the suburban version of a hardened war general. She never lost a battle. Not one. Chris and I exchanged shrugs, almost impressed. Game respect game. At home, we popped in the VHS, heard the sweet sound of gears pull the tape inside the VCR, the mechanical hum of wheels spinning film over rollers, transforming our darkened living room into a grand theater, rippled red velvet walls, balcony suites, and me and Chris had the best seats in the house. We fast-forwarded through the coming attractions, then pressed play. Black screen, men in cloaks. One of them, the leader, had shimmering green eyes and long devil horns. He was ranting and raving, some kind of ceremony. Me and Chris were immediately wrapped. I pulled the blanket over my knees and up to my chin. The horned leader was handed something wrapped inside of a black shawl. We see that it's a baby. The leader set it on an altar, chanted incantations, his voice deep and echoing, growing into a scream. The baby starts to cry. I look at Chris. He doesn't look at me, his eyes locked onto the screen. The leader grabs a dagger, looks down at the baby, more chanting. From the kitchen, I hear my dad say something like, What's that they're watching? The horned leader raises his knife, his green eyes flashing with 80s neon, a telltale sign of unadulterated evil.
lights flare from the knife's pointed edge. The infant squeals. This is where, in my memory, all hell breaks loose. I screech. My brother gasps. My mom runs in and blocks the TV with her body, frantically pushing buttons on the VCR, hunting for the one that says eject. Don't look! She screams, utilizing the age-old parenting technique known as misdirected anger. I spill the popcorn. The tape slides out. I pull the blanket from over my eyes. We made it all of five minutes in. From the kitchen, my dad says something like, I can go for some nice chicken soup. To this day, I've never seen the rest of Ghoulies. These, these takeaways could be sort of jokes that I take away from these movies, um, or they could be a little bit more serious. And I wanted to strike that balance between um, not taking myself too seriously, like this was all the most important work in the world. I wanted to have fun with it. But I also did want to did want to honor the idea that there there is meat here if you're willing to look for it, and um, you have to attribute to that within the chapters and make sure that each of these movies are informing these stories in one way or another. Sure, it's really clever. I mean, I've never really come across um, a book like this, and and I know that we're kind of like talking about it as if it's really serious, but that's that's the thing. I mean, you do what you say on the tin, the humorist. And it is just incredibly funny. It is just so... In, you, you make your, your real life um, quite humorous as well. I don't know whether that's kind of like something that, that you've worked on, whether it's, it's something that comes really naturally to you, but it does feel that way. Yeah, but thank you very much. Um, yeah, it, it's a little bit of both, too. You know, I, I think I, I am a little guilty of, um, you know, using humor as a defense mechanism through my mm. life, but... At the same time, I, I, I was a journalist for a few years, and I had a weekly humor column, and, and that is, uh, it's, it's kind of hard work. You have to come up with a new column every single week, and not, it, was, it was similar to this sort of vein where you know, you're talking about your own life, but you're trying to pull lessons out of it, you know, in some, okay. in some varied kind of way where it wasn't too overt, but I was trying to basically analyze myself and the world um, as a 20-something. And then this book is kind of more doing that as a 30-something, also obviously working in this movie perspective. But that training that I got as a weekly humor columnist, I think, was invaluable with, with this book because it does teach you so much about creative discipline and about finding your voice. And those are all things that I learned as a journalist, for sure. Oh, wow. And... You are actually an award-winning journalist because I, I looked on, on your blog and, and I saw that. I saw that you, you actually won a, a few awards for, for your journalism. How hard is it to make the, the jump from, as you say, writing a column every week to, to then deciding that you're actually going to embark on this major project uh, of, a, of a whole book? Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. In some ways, it feels organic, and it feels like I'm doing the same thing, just on a bigger scale. And then there were some days when I was working on this where it felt so different, and I felt like, what am I doing? Why am I wasting my time? Mm. This is never going to work. This idea is crazy. But, yeah, I, I think that uh, belief is not really so, so big, because when you're, when you're in that sort of journalism training, and you're just having to meet constant deadlines. Mm. There's always another deadline after the, the story that you submit. You know, you, you never get that break period of feeling like, okay, I'm all caught up with my work, and now I can relax. Sure. There's always something else coming down the pike. 
Mm-hmm. And so after a few years of that, and now I've been working in higher education communications for uh, close to a decade now, you know, my, my whole sort of uh, primary working life has just been about producing pages in one way or another. So I think that part of it wasn't, it wasn't so, so difficult for me. It was more about um, trying to make sure that I was, that I was maintaining the focus of, of the book. You know, what, what was I trying to say with the book? Maintaining the focus on the stories um, within it while also working in these movie elements because in my own working life, there were so many times where I was writing stories about other people, and it's very easy to do that. Sure. You interview them, you base your stories uh, off of their words and off of their history. But when you're basing it off of your own life, I think it's a little bit easier to kind of get off track and go off on tangents. And I wanted to include a little bit of that in the book, but I didn't want it to overtake it. And that was what I struggled with the most. Well, I think it you know, shows great mindset and, and discipline, um, and it's also a way of taking the best from everything you've experienced, whether it's been interviewing people or it's been watching a movie, taking the best of everything that you've experienced and creating this unique content from it. Um, when I first began to, to read it, I, I was assuming that it was just going to be about the horror movies, and I thought that it was very interesting that it was about you and, and your life just as much as it was um, about the movies. But how many movies do you reckon that, that you've actually watched in the horror genre, say? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> How many movies went into the making of this? <laughs> I, I, I would say that this book, I probably reference um, about 100 horror movies. Wow. How many horror movies I've watched in my life? Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, that's got to be <laughs> that's got to be close to a thousand. I would say it's got to be up there. Um, I do have a Letterboxd account where I sort of track my movies that I watch and okay. I write reviews on them. And I've been doing that since I've been about sixteen years old, I think. And that I have I don't know twenty five hundred, close to three thousand reviews on there. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly how many horror films I've watched, but I think saying too many is probably <laughs> appropriate. <laughs> well, I think it, it, because you've been in, into this this hobby, say for from such a young age, and you've seen the the devices and the formats change, and it's something that that you mention in the book as well. It's like you know going from like a an old fashioned kind of TV to to the H. D screen and you've seen all these these changes with special effects and and stuff like that are you ever tempted because obviously the things that scare us as a kid you know like I remember being terrified um, when I first saw Thriller Michael Jackson but then oh, I, yeah. I watched it again you know more more recently and it's like oh you know what was that 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 was nothing did you ever, <laughs> do you ever like go back and just seek and do, do you still feel the same as your your kid or teenage self felt about an, an old horror film uh, it's it's hot and cold really you know I, I will revisit some movies that I remember loving from my childhood and, and realize that they don't really hold up so much anymore but then at the same time I had some rediscoveries you know movies that I I watched when I was maybe in my early or mid-teens and I thought were just okay and then I watched them again recently you know one example is uh The Fly David Cronenberg's The Fly John Carpenter's The Thing those are two movies I saw when I was about I don't know probably 15 or so and 
I thought they were fine. I didn't really get them. And then watching again recently for the writing of this book, I had a totally new appreciation for them and realized, like, man, these things are kind of their own little masterpieces in a way. And mm, I don't know. I, I love I love that that is part of the movie watching experience. That nothing just stays the same. You grow with these movies, and you look back, and it seems like the movie has changed. But then you realize, no, it's actually you.
close at hand Creatures crawl in search of blood To terrorize your neighborhood And whosoever shall be found Without the soul for getting down Must stand and face the hounds of hell And rot inside a corpse's shell really interesting section in the book as well um, the matinee section where you've got these uh, the, the lessons from the fairy tales and obviously um, as either a parent or a child you, you always have memories uh, around fairy tales but, but you've got like a, a, a very unique and humorous kind of um, description of, of what all these kind of fairy tales actually teach you and the Disney world so to speak as well yeah, I think that culturally we are much, much more obsessed with fear and with horror than we even realize. Mm. And looking back at old, at old fairy tales, you realize that these are all just horror stories. The story of Hansel and Gretel, if you really think about it, is awful. You know, terrible things happen. These kids are tortured at home. But that's your favorite, isn't it? <laughs> I, I do. I, I love it because it's so dark and so insane. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it, that does tell us something about the way that we were raised. And these things are so normal to us that we can tell stories to very little kids about little kids in a story who were, you know, victims of domestic violence and then ran away into the woods, got lost, were abducted by a witch who tried mm. to eat them. And then the, the sort of happily ever after is, they escape the witch only to go back to their horrible, terrible <laughs> parents and their bad house. That's a bad story. You know, but we told very little kids that. And so there's a certain level of indoctrination, I think, into just the mindset of fear that goes on in, in this culture. And I think that if you look hard enough, you can find that everywhere. You know, in the cereal aisle, you'll find 
uh, Frankenberry, <laughs> Chocula, oh, yeah. uh, on Sesame Street, a vampire is teaching us to count. Oh, yeah, the count. Yeah, well, you know, I think enough people were actually terrified of their maths exam. They call it maths over here. I know it's math there in, in the States, yeah. but I think enough people were, were, were ter are being like really traumatised by their, their math um, <laughs> exams. So, yeah, it, it all kind of um, fits in. And, and the Brothers Grimm was where most of the fairy tales came from, wasn't it? And, and they, that was terrifying. Old German, ancient, terrifying uh, folklore stories that have been then Disney-fied. Yeah, it's really interesting that Disney sort of took these stories and, and made them pretty looking. And, you know, that's what we sort of grew up on. That's how we learned what movies are, a lot of us, through these a animated Sleeping Beauty type stories. Mm. And then you go back and you read the original text and you realize, man, these are scary. You know, these are these are horror stories. And we just sort of didn't, we, we didn't see them that way when we were watching Snow White, you know, as a, as a kid. We just kind of saw this woman who lived with a lot of, a lot of uh, <laughs> and sleepy and sniffly dwarves and, you know, she sang and, and cleaned up her house with birds and that's what we focused on. But really there was some, there was some darker stuff going on in the background there. And what was that thing that you said, um, it, it's, it, it's never safe to be pretty or something, I think that was your, your description. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah that, that's the big rule, that's the, that's the takeaway from Snow White, do not be pretty, whatever you do, don't be pretty. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it, it's a great take on, on everything. And what this book as well is, Mike, is it, it, it's very honest. I think, you know, you've, you've put a lot of your, your own honesty, the honesty of your opinion, the honesty of, of your own life. Was that a conscious decision? It's like, right, if I'm going to write a, a book like this, I, I'm just going to be as honest as I can. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it's kind of all we have to give, and especially when you do write in the tone that I write in, you know, so often my tone could be a little bit flippant or irreverent, and I think that if you can make fun of yourself, you can make fun of, um, you know, the world, you can make fun of Grimm's fairy tales and all that kind of stuff, but if, if you're not also willing to be vulnerable, if you're not willing to share the parts that are a little more secret inside of ourselves, then, um, it's, it's harder to take the narrator seriously, you know, yeah. they don't show uh, a, a multi-dimensional side. So I definitely tried to keep that front and center and not shy away from um, topics or opinions um, or secrets about myself that, you know, maybe I have buried over the years because that is one of the takeaways that I kind of learned from this whole experience and trying to analyze my own relationship with pop culture and with media and if I am going to really try to put myself out there more, you know, connect more with people, uh, honesty is 100% is central to that, uh, to that effort. So, yeah, I, I, I kept it in mind from, from day one. Well, I, I thought that it was great because it, it, it felt like as if it was such a grounded view of, of a life that has been, you know, apparently lived through through these movies. Some people would be of the impression, oh, he's living his life up there in the clouds with all these movies and he's running away from <laughs> this, that and the other. But, but you know, to, to show that, that side of yourself, um, I thought that it, that it was really good. And obviously, some of these things... You, you, 
It's one of these things, isn't it? When when you're a kid, you can never imagine the the adults being a kid or or a teenager or or whatever. Yeah. So, um, whatever age you may be reading this, I, I think that it would start to uh, to appeal to people up to even young adult age, and it's good to kind of like say, well, you know, and this is. Um, an experience from from the teenage years or, or something like this or like th through your health issues so yeah it's a really good way that you've kind of like looked back on y your own childhood come forward and in, into adulthood yourself yeah thanks I, I think that, that growing up is such a weird thing that we all do because in, in some ways it is in most ways obviously it's unstoppable you get older and you you get a job and you enter into serious relationships and mm. you have dependents and you know you have responsibilities and so before you know it you are grown up but then there's another there's another facet to it where being a grown-up is kind of all an act you know we're kind of all just pretending to be a very serious person at work you know mm. and not think that certain jokes are funny that we used to think were funny when we were six years old and I still, I like that I still laugh at very stupid jokes from my childhood. You know, that's any opportunity yeah. to laugh. I, I want, I want to take that. And so I, I think that that line between trying to figure out how much of um, being a grown up I am in control over and how much just happens to you is, is sort of important because that, that defines who you're going to be from that point forward. Sure. I mean, it doesn't help these days that we 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 all basically wear the same kind of things, you know, like because of like leisure wear and stuff. It's like we're all wearing the hoodies or the jogging suits or or, or whatever. So so sometimes it, it's there's almost like blurred lines these days, isn't there? <laughs> there really is. <laughs> At what age do you become a grown up? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not convinced no that I'm one now, so, mm. so maybe maybe it's in your fifties. I don't know. We'll see when I get there. Maybe maybe I'll be a grown up then. Yes, maybe no, but I think you do have a very like grown up um attitude to actually, you know study these movies in depth as you have. Which character, of all the movies that you've actually watched in your time, which character do you, do you believe is most like you? Oh, the character is most <laughs> like me. That is a tough one. Um, hmm. Character? It's hard to say. Um, the, the first movie that sort of pops in my mind when you ask that question is, is The Babadook. Okay. Because that movie is so, it's so much about um, grief and, and anxiety and trying to figure out if it's possible to force all of those things down and keep them out. You know, that's sort of a, a main theme throughout the movie is don't let it in, don't let it in, mm. speaking about the Babadook, but also speaking about these feelings. And I think that by the end of the movie, we learned that the only real way to live with certain demons is to keep them close by and and just accept that they are a part of you. You know, sort of nurture them and then move on with your life. As long as they're there, then you're not denying a part of yourself. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun. But at least you're not denying the parts of yourself that are harder to think through. And that's just a theme from that movie that that I really connected with, and it's still it's still one of my all-time favorites.
Wow. No, that, that, that's amazing. And like, obviously, I think one of the things that you hit home throughout this book is that some of the, the most frightening things that happen to us are through um, maybe health issues that our relatives are suffering or, or we're suffering our, ourselves. And it, it's not just focused on parent child you 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 go into your relationship with your your um your grandpa and i think it was your, your uncle and you kind of explore mm -hmm. all these different health issues that that emerge um for different generations different ages yeah yeah this, this sense that your identity uh morphs over time and and then at times kinds of kind of slips away you know as as you get older whether it's through aging or through uh, mental health issues or through any other kind of thing, through, even through smaller, more coming-of-age uh, struggles like being rejected by a romantic partner or something like that. There yeah. are times where you kind of feel like the person that I thought that I was is not here right now, and you're always kind of fighting to keep a hold of that person because who you are when you feel the most in control. It's who you are when you feel the most confident. And when you do struggle with certain health scares that kind of remind you of your own mortality or of certain mental health issues, like certain people in my in my family, and you sort of lose that control, it does sort of beg the question of, well, who are you really? Because this thing is a part of you. So where is the line between, you know, your true self and, and this, uh, yeah, this dysfunction in a way. And even on a smaller level, I think that I, I could apply that to myself with an addiction to, to screens. You know, it's, it's, it is another way of sort of letting, um, I don't know, my self-awareness slip for a little bit so that I don't have to be me, you know? And I think that we all have that thing, even if we're not always aware of what that thing is. Of course, yeah, and and obviously the the other thing about horror movies is it's like that big reflection of the the, the shadow self, isn't it, or the or the shadow life? Because we live in in a world where um, we completely crave perfection through a perfect Instagram kind of existence. So so sometimes I think that that may be why the craving to to watch so much horror comes into play. I think you're right. I think that's definitely true, and. I think the thing about horror films that kind of reconnects us to that just messy part of our of ourselves that is true and, and real is just that that fear is such a central part of of change and of growing up, you know, whether it's fear of change or fear of the unknown. And horror movies are our most visceral art form. You know, our bodies respond to and are engaged in the experience of watching a horror film unlike they are with any with a movie in any other genre you know where you, your heart beats faster and you tense up and, and you jump out of your seat those are things that just don't happen when you're watching a, a drama you know a biopic anything sure. like that and i think that those physical reactions do sort of activate something in us and they do remind us that um even when things are ugly or not perfect, um, that our bodies will still respond, we're still here, and it kind of reminds us uh, to sort of be in touch with our physical self and maybe to get out of our heads a little bit every now and then. Yeah, it's a complete experience. The screaming, the jumping, it, it does make it um, a complete experience. But I just wanted to, to ask you, Mike, have you ever considered um, a secondary 
career as a, as a comedian because some parts are really laugh out loud fun. I mean like take Unfriended I know it's like bittersweet and very relatable but like you you thanked the mom hard when she just kind of like was saying oh this, this girl's not, not available right now just little things that you wouldn't even really imagine to be funny but they are so funny so has that ever crossed your mind that you could you know embark on a, on a secondary career as a, as a comedian? Well, I've always really loved comedy, and I, I am, I'm a little bit obsessed with stand-up in my own way, but at the same time, I, I am kind of hyper-practical and logical, I think, to a fault sometimes, and whenever I do have an urge to do something out of the norm, I always think, okay, well, where does this lead? If it doesn't work out, what do I do? Mm. You know, should I put all my eggs in that basket? And sometimes that overthinking, which I've mentioned before, um, it, it does kind of disconnect you from things that maybe you do want or maybe you should try. So I haven't really ever thought about it seriously, but I do 100% have a, a draw and kind of an undeniable attraction to um, to comedy and stand-up comics, so maybe maybe I should give it a try. Maybe that's another thing I should learn from this experience, and I should try to grow and go onto a stage and have people not laugh at me and feel terrible about it, and then try again, you know? Yeah, I'll come over to the to the UK to the Edinburgh Fringe and just like try a little set out and uh, and see how it goes. And um, but it's it's been wonderful to speak to you today um, about this book and for, for as thought provoking and serious as as it is in terms of the content matter, it's also so funny and it's so relatable because you know a lot of these horror movies we we've all watched them. They're in our kind of like archetypal consciousness, aren't they? So I think you know everyone can can get something from this are, are you still the same in terms of um watching movies do, do you still get that buzz from you know picking a, a scary movie from netflix say I, I do still watch a lot of movies one of the things i, I kind of tried to do is after writing this book is kind of cut down a little bit and you know, more be a little bit more present in mm. my own life and in my own relationships, and and maybe on some nights spend some time with my wife instead of watching a movie. That that's an idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that that has been one change. Um, as far as do I get scared still watching horror films? If the if the movie is good enough, yes, for sure. Um, I have watched so many in my life that I'm I'm kind you can of get these scared. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you get desensitized a little bit, but I, I do, I do um, still feel it, you know, like anybody else. And I, I just recently saw uh, the new Evil Dead, Evil Dead Rise in theater and just had a great time with it. And it's one of these movies that is a little bit funny, a little bit creepy. It's not the scariest film I've ever seen, but mm. I, I definitely felt all of those um, those visceral reactions that I'm chasing, you know, when I when I go to to the horror cinema, so I'm, yeah, I, I still feel it for sure. Ah, so you still go to the actual cinemas as well, because that's something that's kind of like on, on the d decline in a way in, in the UK, so it's, it's good that you still actually, yeah. I, I definitely do, and I'm one of these that will try to go to the matinee showing um, on a weekend when the theater is empty. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. just me yeah. and, you know, one or two other weirdos in there, <laughs> and those are my people, you know, so I get there. And get, get your um, big box of popcorn and just, like, let it fly all, all over the place without disturbing anyone else. <laughs> exactly. That's the dream right there. 
before before I let you go, Mike, I'm just like wondering what what does your wife think of you writing this book? Is she like he's he's gone from watching all these these movies to to now I can't get enough time with him because he's writing this book, or does she think it's a great <laughs> idea? <laughs> I think that she's a little torn between the two. You know, sometimes she's uh, very supportive. Um, I think that she's happy for me that I that I did it just sort of on a personal level. But I do also think that there is a little bit of um, uncomfort, discomfort there on her side about how she's being portrayed in the book. And, and you know, listen, if there's anybody that comes off badly in this book, it's me. It's not you. So I'm always going to be um, the butt of the joke more more than she is. And so I think that has kind of uh, assuaged her, her fears a little bit. Well, I think that that your story throughout the the book, that that kind of all the the films kind of orbits your story, and somewhere along the line, I I could imagine the whole thing being a, a kind of a movie in itself, like a a movie that's centered around this this guy that has been like obsessed with with these movies. So so you you never know, your book could actually go in so many different uh, directions, Mike. Have you got plans for it for a sequel or or anything else off the back of this? Oh, right now, I just kind of want to um, enjoy it being done. You know, I've, I've been so locked into just constant work. Whenever I have any free time, it's like, okay, I'm doing this. And right now, I'm, I'm, I'm recording the audiobook version of it. So even after I'm done with the writing, I kind of didn't get that sort of deep breath of being done. Because oh, now I'm on yeah. to the next project. But once I finish that... I want to rest for a little bit, and I don't know exactly what I'm going to do next, um, if there will be a sequel, um, but I'm sure there's going to be some kind of writing involved. There always has been um, in my track record, so I'm sure that that is another habit that will, that will keep up with me as I, as I get older. Well, I'm glad that you're the one that's actually doing the audio because, like, we will treat our listeners to to a sample piece from the first um, chapter, and that's full of lots of laugh out loud, good parenting um, advice and technique in in its own very unique way, um, as listeners will will find out. So, so, so I'm glad that you're actually doing the audio. I think a book like this actually requires it to be in in your voice because it's like your emotion that's like pouring through the whole the whole book isn't it yeah it would have felt a little weird if someone else was reading it i think because there there would just be some times where maybe the it would be it would be a confusion over whether a line was a joke or whether a line was supposed to be read earnestly and uh, that line is crossed and hopefully written um, a lot throughout throughout the text so yeah, it's it's been fun recording it. Um, it's been another new experience. I'm I'm glad to have had it, and yeah, I'm gonna be interested to hear what what people think of it once it's out there. So, and it's out very soon. So, do you want to to let the listeners know how they can um, purchase your book? Because it's going to be available internationally, isn't it? Yes, it will be. It'll be available on Amazon. Uh, on June 13th, the, the Kindle ebook version and the paperback version will be out there and available to buy. The ebook version is available now for pre order, um, and the audiobook version shouldn't be very far behind. I was hoping to get it out at the same time, but it might be a little bit later. We'll see about that. And really, if you just type in the humorous adventures in adulting and horror movies in Amazon, uh, you'll see that there, and people can also find me on 
on Twitter or at my website, and both of those names are Kava Stories. That's C-A-V-A Stories.com. Brilliant. It's been a pleasure to speak to you today. I do appreciate it. Um, we've defied the time zones. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have. Well, thanks, thanks a lot, Ruth. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate talking to you. Oh, wonderful. You must let us know um, what you're up to next and uh, look forward to, to sharing your audio with the listeners. Absolutely. I appreciate it again. Have a great okay. one. Take care. The first movie that ever scared me was a 1980s creature feature called Ghoulies. My mom rented it for my brother Chris and me one roaring Friday night from our local blockbuster video. Back then, this was our idea of a party. We'd hit Blockbuster and troll the aisles, the heels of our sneakers exploding red with every step, and we'd search for the night's main event. It was the 90s, and we were explorers in there, flying blind and taking chances. We'd barrel through the sections, new releases, to favorites, to comedy, to action, without a single internet review or Rotten Tomato score to lead our way. The risk was part of the ritual, the thrill of the hunt, the high stakes, we bet it all on every movie we ever rented from that place, and we couldn't get enough. We craved its rush. We were eight-year-old gamblers and ten-year-old ramblers, holding the fate of our nights in our hands with every tape. We had only one guiding light, VHS cover art, and we lived and died young by it. Finally, we hit the horror section, that's where we found Ghoulies, and its cover art was primo. In it, a green monster baby wearing red suspenders, think... An angry-looking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, with wrinkly arms and sharp fingernails, was holding himself waist up from out of a toilet bowl. Tagline? They'll get you in the end. Say no more, ghoulies. You're coming with us. Mom! I probably yelled, coming in hot to establish the seriousness of this request. Can we get this? We have to get this! Mm, I don't know, she said. Looks kind of scary. Clearly, she was hysterical. We won't get scared, I whined. No way, Chris jumped in. I'm not a baby anymore. Mom! It's easy to miss, but in this moment, Chris and I had seamlessly transitioned into the foolproof childhood negotiation technique known as shock and awe. It was sure to reinforce the gravity of this situation and overwhelm my mother into bending to our will. We hit her with a surround sound attack, me on one side, Chris on the other, raining pleads upon her like two verbal Gatlin guns, spraying and praying. It worked like a charm. Before we knew it, we were in the checkout line begging for Blockbuster's signature $9 packs of Sour Punch and $52 buckets of popcorn. There's popcorn at home, my mother said, not even dignifying our request by looking down at our needy faces. She was stonewalling a classic adult negotiation strategy, and one we knew well. We'd seen it employed many times before. We had tried all of our tactics on her in the past in this line, such as the soft sell. Sure would be nice to get some of these M&Ms, and oh, wow, look, they're only $8. Reverse psychology. Hey, Chris, imagine if Mom punished us by forcing us to eat a whole pack of these $11 milk duds. The wet ask, otherwise known as crying, and when desperate, we appealed to her maternal instincts, clutched our stomachs, and writhed in fake pain. But I'm starving! 
This was known as the Hail Mary plea, a.k.a. the self-destruct protocol. High risk, but high reward. None of them worked. My mom was good, real good. She never entered the snack line without an airtight exit strategy. In case of emergency, she always had a failsafe. Would you rather go home with nothing? She'd snarl, eyebrows raised so smug. She knew she had us. In that rope-lined maze surrounded by sugar-coated temptations, my mother was the suburban version of a hardened war general. She never lost a battle. Not one. Chris and I exchanged shrugs, almost impressed. Game respect game. At home, we popped in the VHS, heard the sweet sound of gears pull the tape inside the VCR, the mechanical hum of wheels spinning film over rollers, transforming our darkened living room into a grand theater, rippled red velvet walls, balcony suites, and me and Chris had the best seats in the house. We fast-forwarded through the coming attractions, then pressed play. Black screen, men in cloaks, one of them the leader had shimmering green eyes and long devil horns. He was ranting and raving, some kind of ceremony. Me and Chris were immediately wrapped. I pulled the blanket over my knees and up to my chin. The horned leader was handed something wrapped inside of a black shawl. We see that it's a baby. The leader set it on an altar, chanted incantations, his voice deep and echoing, growing into a scream. The baby starts to cry. I look at Chris. He doesn't look at me, his eyes locked onto the screen. The leader grabs a dagger looks down at the baby, more chanting. From the kitchen, I hear my dad say something like, What's that they're watching? The horned leader raises his knife, his green eyes flashing with 80s neon, a telltale sign of unadulterated evil. Lights flare from the knife's pointed edge. The infant squeals. This is where, in my memory, all hell breaks loose. I screech. My brother gasps. My mom runs in and blocks the TV with her body, frantically pushing buttons on the VCR, hunting for the one that says eject. Don't look! She screams, utilizing the age-old parenting technique known as misdirected anger. I spill the popcorn. The tape slides out. I pull the blanket from over my eyes. We made it all of five minutes in. From the kitchen, my dad says something like, I can go for some nice chicken soup. To this day... I've never seen the rest of Ghoulies.
Ah, disaster piece there with a title track of It Follows. <laughs> You're listening to the Sunday Tea Show right here on 96.9 All FM on your radio, allfm.org, wherever you are in the world, online with me, Ruth O'Reilly. Delighted to be keeping you company. And I don't know how much of a good idea it actually is for me to be playing these horror movies when I'm sat here in um, an old library building. It used to be an old Victorian library. Many people know that I do believe that that sometimes it's a little bit haunted and here I am playing spooky tracks spooky movie tracks but I, I played that because it was one of the selections of my special guest today who has been Mike Cavalier all the way from Florida where it is about 11am right now I believe but big thank you to Mike Cavalier from carverstories.com for being my special guest on today's show you can purchase his latest book The Humorist Adventures in Adulting and Horror Movies from the 13th of June on Amazon and it will be on Kindle very soon after so it's great you know if you're someone that has studied social uh, science as I have you'll find it really interesting but really laugh out loud funny as well and I think movies are one of these things that kind of really collectively join us together no matter where you are whether you're from Florida or Manchester you can relate to how these movies have made you felt especially as a kid growing up and it makes you feel almost not so bad for watching too many movies as well <laughs> 